If you're between the ages of four years old to the second grade, you're excused to kids club. You can run. It's good to be excited. On a side note, I was in, worked in a church in Dallas that had a school in it. And this kid was running down the hall one day, and this teacher yelled at the kid, The Bible says don't run in church! I'm like, what? The Bible does not say don't. No, I'm not telling kids to run in church. The kids that run all left, so I'm not giving anyone permission. I'm just saying, let's not blame the Bible for that. This morning we are continuing on in the book of Psalms. We're walking through a series of Psalms, looking at different ones, calling it our series, Songs for Your Life. Recognizing as you work through the Psalms... Uh, It presents lots of different situations and scenarios that just speak to the reality of our living. Whether we've considered Psalm 1, looking at wisdom and right living, and Psalm 16, considering the sufficiency of God that the Lord is our chosen portion in our cup, or Psalm 46, which we'll look at briefly again, at least for a moment today, that God is our very present help in trouble. I hope it's been a series that's been encouraging and edifying for you. We've only got a handful of them left uh, just before I forget to tell you, we'll be in 1.30 next week, and I believe in 1.36 the week after that. Um, and so we're working through these psalms. As we've worked through them, I've been giving you kind of a quote to begin with, and, and so I wanted to give you a, a Charles Spurgeon quote this morning. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. The delightful study of the psalms has yielded me boundless profit and ever-growing pleasure. Common gratitude constrains me to communicate to others a portion of the benefit with a prayer that it may induce them to search further for themselves. He's hoping that studying the Psalms will draw you even more into them. In fact, I was reading this week a, a fascinating thing about Charles Spurgeon. He had a preaching school in England. There, there we had two really primary conditions for you to get in. Uh, one, you had to have the entire book of Psalms memorized. Yowzers. And two, this benefits me much better, uh, it was all based on chest size. Um, if your chest measurement exceeded 48 inches, which, you know, I've got, he believed that you then would have the ability to proclaim God's word to a crowd. Smaller men don't have that ability, which is sad because I know some small guys that can bring it. Uh, but, but that was uh, Charles Spurgeon's preaching school back in the day. Well, as we, uh, this morning we are looking at Psalm 121. And as we've taken the habit of reading it, I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to ask you to stand up and read it with me. It'll be on the screen for your benefit. Psalm 121, verse 1. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Psalm 121, you can be seated again. 
As we walk into Psalm 121, this section of Psalms 120 to 134 are called Psalms of Ascent. They're part of the great Halal Psalms. But these Psalms run together in a group, and they're kind of unique in this. Because being Psalms of Ascent, they stood to the nation of Israel as songs that would be sung as pilgrim Israelites would return to Jerusalem for their annual feasts. So you have to picture that. As people are gathering in Jerusalem for the annual feasts, all these men and their families from all over the country had songs that they would sing as they started coming together, teaching them things. Deuteronomy 16, 16 and 17 gives us a picture of those psalms or of those feasts. It says this in Deuteronomy, it's also in Exodus, by the way, but it says, Three times a year, all your males, this is God speaking, shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread, you'll know that as the Passover. At the Feast of the Weeks, you'll know that as Pentecost. And at the Feast of the Booths, you might know it as Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God he has given you. So God would call his people together at a minimum three times a year that they would gather as a large group of people belonging to God, that they would fellowship together and that they would come and present themselves to God. They would worship God and they would bring their offering. It's a little bit of a picture of an Old Testament church, if you'll let me put it that way. But these men and their families would sing these songs. And Psalm 121 had a specific spot. In fact, it said as you approached Jerusalem, uh, by the way, it's, I think, 78 miles if you were going to come from the Sea of Galilee, for example. If you were going to walk around uh, up, you'd come down through Jericho and then up the the mountains into Jerusalem. 74 miles, that's a four-day hike. If you're going to walk that four days, you're going to sing a lot of songs. But as you started getting close to Jerusalem, this would be the song you would sing as you started to see the mountains grow before you. Psalm 121 starts this way from the psalmist. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? And walking up this hill to Jerusalem, the psalmist starts to contemplate his journey. You know, he might have been walking for a day. He might have been walking for three days. He might have been walking for more. And at this moment, there's probably some physical exhaustion. There may be some weariness built into him. But he's wondering what has carried him. He's wondering what the provisions have come from. This is a bit of a catechism in a sense. He's asking questions and he's giving you the answers. But as he goes to meet the Lord, it causes him to contemplate his journey. And it's a great reminder for us too. That we need seasons to contemplate. We need seasons to consider. See, we live in a day and a time and an age where we really don't know quiet anymore. We don't know silence. As soon as I get in my car, I turn on something to listen to. I've even been guilty of plugging my phone into an earpiece so I can continue to listening to it from my car into my office. That's how bad it can get sometimes. I remember as a single guy, one of my favorite, favorite things to do was to drive. If you could put me in a car for four to five hours and leave it quiet, it was the most refreshing, relaxing time I got. And I'd always laugh because I'd start quietly. I'd turn the music off and I'd sit. And to be honest with you, for about the first 20 minutes to half an hour, it always felt awkward because we're not used to silence. 
And as I'd sit there and I'd get used to the awkward, sudden, at some point, I would start talking to myself. And I would make a noise, and like, ooh, noise. And just the idea of hearing my own voice became something. And that always started me into a good conversation with the Lord. Guys, as we walk into this psalm, be reminded, as these guys clearly were, that we need times and seasons of contemplation. We need times just to stew and think. We need times of quiet. And I promise you, if these guys are walking for three or four days, there were times when it was quiet. Now, they maybe had to wrap up the kids or send them with somebody else's families because my kids wouldn't be quiet on a four-day walk. But we need these times. We need these times to be healthy. We need these times to consider life. So as the psalmist is considering, as he's walking up these hills, he looks up and says, where does my help come from? He says in verse 2, my help comes from the Lord, who made the heavens and the earth. And that's where you have to step into the psalm and appreciate that this is a congregational psalm. That's why we read it out loud. That as a congregational song, we would start singing this together. And yet, as you consider these first two verses, there's a place in it that though we're all singing together, you've got to individually own it. It's got to be yours. See, it's not we lift up our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? There's an individual part in here. And in fact, all of these pronouns speak to the singular text. It's talking to you. Where does your help come from individually? The Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, is the psalmist's response. Psalm 46.1, we looked at this several weeks back. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in a time of trouble. Our help comes from the Lord, the creator God, the God who created everything And that God is equal to every need and equal to every trouble before us. And we step into this psalm. And it's easy for us to stop and consider these words and not consider the situations that the psalmist would be in to write this song. Or the situations of the thousands upon thousands who sang and on their way to meet God. Or to even consider the situations of the people sitting around us. My prayer this morning as we've walked into the psalm is that as we gather together that you would lift your eyes to the hills and that you'd see our great creator God as one who's willing and desiring to meet your needs. Because as a congregational psalm, they all claimed that. They all claimed it personally before they moved into a corporate place. You see that as the psalmist switches from first person to third person Headed into verse 3. And in verse 3 he says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And so now we've turned from this place where each individual is claiming, God is my help, to this place where we're now edifying and encouraging one another. This is the very place of church, by the way. That we'd come together and, and claim Jesus Christ as our help. Claim Jesus Christ as the only sufficiency we have to stand on. And yet gather corporately to edify and encourage one another. It's the same thing that's happening here. He will not let your foot be moved. And if you're hiking on a gravel, rocky road, that's an important word. He will not let your foot be moved. Our helper is a sure foundation. 
He's steady. Isaiah prophesied this in 33.6 when he said, And he will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And the fear of the Lord is key to this treasure. That our God is a sure foundation. He's trustworthy and true. And Paul taught Timothy the same thing with the same fulfillment in 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. When Paul says to Timothy, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. See, Paul wanted Timothy to know that God was a sure foundation, that he was firm, and that if you belong to him, he'll be firm with you. Those who confessed his name belong to him, and he is a sure foundation that never tires Never gets tired. It says that in verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Hebrew, it says he is the keeper of Israel. I laughed last summer. I was reading through the psalm in my time. I was studying it and I, I sent a message to Jennifer Jacobson. You may know Jen. She is a zoo, or she's a zookeeper. She's a keeper of the zoo. Mixed of all my words. And I laughed. And I said, Jen, this should be a good psalm for you. You keep animals at the zoo. This psalm clearly says, the Lord is your keeper. You ought to get this to a degree I don't. I actually suggested her at some point when you taught this, it'd be fun if she could bring an owl or some other live animal into the sanctuary. For a lot of reasons, that's not a good idea. <laughs> but the truth of being, Jen being a keeper and the Lord being our keeper are the same. That God looks after us. God takes care of us. That as a nation of Israel gathered to walk to Jerusalem, to pray and to exhort each other and to encourage one another, as each one has had to claim him individually, and they're trying to encourage one another in corporate, they all say to one another, the Lord is your keeper. That you'd be reminded of the reality that God takes care of you. See, we can miss that so easily in the days that we live. To not realize that God watches over us. He allows things to happen and he doesn't allow others. But he's always good and he's always faithful. The psalmist continues, The Lord is your shade at your right hand. He watches over us and he's our shade. Psalm 91.1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And you see this picture in the Old Testament, that exposure to the sun is bad for you. You see that lived out in Jonah 4, when the sun, scorching heat from the east, it says in Jonah, which you might have experienced a tiny bit of yesterday. Withers plants. See, exposure to those kind of elements is hard on you. And that's what you have to appreciate, even in our comfortable American lives. That God watches out for us, and he's our protector. He's our shade. Verse 6, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He builds on that, continues to increase the metaphor. 
If you were walking for four days, the sun would have been a great worry. And yet the moon, signifying the cold of the night, would have equally caused you danger. That's why the psalmist encourages these people to trust in the Lord and then takes these provisions to an even greater level in verse 7. Because he takes it away from just claiming God on an individual level to, ex- to encouraging and edifying each other on a corporate level to verse 7 and 8, making some serious truth claims about who God is and what he wants to do in our lives. In verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now consider that. The Lord will keep you from all evil. That means he doesn't put it before you. That absolutely does not mean that you can't choose it. It means he keeps you from it. Second Thessalonians 2, it's a favorite passage of mine, presents the Holy Spirit as the restrainer of the evil one. It becomes one of my favorite passages because we got to hold on to this idea that regardless of the, how bad a day feels or seems, as much as you might feel like you're getting piled on, the Holy Spirit's holding back the evil one. Say, nope, no, leave him alone. No, don't bother him on that. Keep away. Because God's our keeper. He's taking care of us. He's meeting our needs. He's meeting our provisions. And he will keep your life. Derek Kidner, a British Old Testament professor. I brought in a Canadian last week. Let's give the British their due. Dr. Kidner said this, in light of the other scriptures, to, know, to be kept from all evil does not imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. It doesn't imply a cushioned life, but a well-armed one. So as the psalmist says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. It's this picture of God fortifying you, building you up, providing for you, and feeding you. Now as the nation of Israel would sing this, they knew God and they went to go meet with him. They went to go meet with him at a specific place on a specific hill in Jerusalem. That's why they had to go there. But friends, this is where you appreciate that this psalm was probably written in the neighborhood of 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, give or take. And we have to appreciate that some 2,500 years later, when Jesus Christ enters the picture, he becomes the great fulfillment of most of this psalm. That as you walk through it and you ask yourself and you consider, where does my help come from? You don't have to look to the hills anymore because the sun came from the hills to the earth. He came and he walked amongst us. And he was right and he was true and he came to help you. And to be fair, he didn't come to help you in a Joel Osteen kind of help. Please don't take that the wrong way. Unless you really need to take it the wrong way. Then take it the wrong way. God didn't come to give you your best life now. Jesus Christ came into the world, died on a Roman cross for your sins because the help you needed was dealing with your sin problem. See, these guys had to walk up this mountain multiple times a year carrying sheep and lamb 
birds, all kinds of things to make sacrifices to a God to appease him for the sins that they'd committed. Do you have any idea how many sheep we'd go through? Take some time, read Leviticus, and just keep a tally sheet. My family would be poor. We couldn't afford to go through that many sheep. We'd be well into the birds. Jesus Christ is our help. Jesus Christ, who according to John 1, is the creator of heaven and earth. The agent of creation. Jesus Christ is your solid foundation. And Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, does not sleep. He does not slumber. He does not miss out on anything. And Jesus is your keeper. He is your protection. He is watching over you. So when you get to verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all evil. That's Jesus. Saving you from your sin. Redeeming you from the evil one. Transferring you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And doing an incredible work of salvation in you. So that you are now clothed in him. So that Satan cannot touch you without his permission. And he will keep your life. Jesus. Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of this. Otherwise, we get asked, stuck with lots of questions. See, when we study the Bible, we read through passages, you have to ask yourself, how does this work out in other places? If you're in Iraq right now, and this is your psalm, what do you do? When people are killing Christians hand over fist, when people are being raped and pillaged and their things are being taken, what does it look like for God to keep you from all evil and to keep your life? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ in the flesh keeps you. He will not let evil own you. And he will not let evil take you. Friends, awful things will happen in this world. Awful, awful things. We're radically subject to each other's sins, and it's not really fair, but it's true. And none of it, none of it challenges our God, and none of it challenges his kingdom. The Lord is our keeper, and he will watch over us, and he will keep our life. And it's not just in this moment, in verse 8, he concludes, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. In a couple weeks, we might look at Psalm 139. It's interesting, Psalm 139, because it tells you that God watches your comings and your goings. If you descend to the depths, he's still there. So regardless of how far into sin you might walk into, and the chances are great in a church of this size, we got some people pretty neck deep in sin. And you may wonder if Jesus is still in the midst of it. You still might wonder if Jesus can bail you out of it, if he can redeem you from it, if he can save you from it. Or whether or not it'll define you. And the answer is Jesus Christ will keep your life. 
That the death that he died on a Roman cross was sufficient for all of your sin. That even in this moment, he claims you and he pulls you out of it. It's the brilliance of Paul telling Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows who are his. And Paul knew he was talking about Jesus. And the second half of that is striking. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. That redemption, that reconciliation, repentance is so key to our faith. It's so key to staying in the Lord. As the psalmist writes, these people are walking up a hill. They're considering, they're pondering what life might hold, where they might be. And you have to step into that a little and think that some of those guys were in pretty bad situations in their jobs. And some of those guys might have had marriages that were a little iffy. And some of those guys probably had toddlers at home that were totally wearing them out. And some of those guys probably had teenagers that they didn't know what to do with. And some of those guys were probably pursuing sin that a loving God wanted them to have nothing to do with. And so as they pondered, as they came together for worship, They ask the question, where does my help come from? And friends, I'd ask you to ask the same question. What is the basis of your life? Where do you find your hope? This psalm served as a catechism to remind them of who God was. That each one individually had to claim it. And then they'd be built up as they encouraged and edified each other with words coming to seven and eight in the end, reminding themselves of the everlasting nature of God, that he would keep them forever. I entitled this message a psalm of preparation. I did so because this kind of contemplation prepared the Israelites to worship. It prepared them to come before the Lord. It asked them to take stock of their life to see what they'd put their trust, to see what they'd put their hope, and to take a solid account of themselves. Something we need to do on a regular basis. Where does my help come from? And as they'd ask the question, they'd constantly be reminded that the Lord is our great help. And then they would sing. They would sing as a congregation the encouragement to everyone else that he is our sure foundation, that he never takes a day off, that he provides for us, and that he protects us. And these Israelites knew that thousands of people would walk the path ahead of them and thousands would walk it after them. Thousands of people claim in the name of Yahweh. And they cling to this truth. And this morning, I pray that you will too. Let me pray for us. Father, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from?
Our help comes from the Lord. Our help is Jesus Christ. There's not one of us here who hasn't attempted to ruin their lives with sin. There's not one of us who haven't been wrecked in our desire for sin. And yet, Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, not only have you removed sin from us, you've pulled out a heart of stone and you've given us a heart of flesh that we are made new creations in Jesus Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Our help is Jesus. Father, like that congregation walked, Father, we walk with no idea who amongst us is neck deep in sin. Father, I pray that as a church, individually, we'd all be able to claim the name of Jesus as our salvation. And that as a church, we'd come around each other and encourage and edify and build one another up with these truths about how we're secure in you, about how you are our sure foundation, that we'd never be tempted to try to do it on our own. And Father, may we put our hope and trust in you. God, that you're good and you're true to us today and you will be forevermore. The Lord is our keeper. Amen.